0: You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on relevant radio 950 a.m. and 930 a.m. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review.
1: Good morning. I'm Jim Dish of the Archdiocese of Chicago's radio TV office. Happy to join you for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Every Saturday we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. Our program today begins with Catholic Chicago host, Father Greg Sakowitz, and Mark Teresi talking with Dr. Edward Gordon. Dr. Gordon is an internationally recognized historian, researcher, and author. Let's listen to a portion of that conversation.
2: Dr. Edward Gordon, welcome to the program this morning. How are you, Edward?
3: I, I'm happy to say that I'm alive and well during this plague that is uh, covering the entire world at this point. And
2: how is your lovely wife Elaine doing? Well, we both are fine. And I know you've spent most of your time indoors, very little time away uh, from your confines in Chicago. And without
3: now, a mask. We we don't spend any time without a mask when we go outside.
2: Yeah. and Now, it's interesting... As you just said, your first couple of words, you talked about the, uh, you didn't call it, you called it a plague.
3: Yes, I think that we've reached the state now where this is a national emergency. It may become an international emergency since 25% of the people infected and people who have died are within the 50 states of the United States.
2: Now, 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 make that statement again. 25%
3: of the world total of people who have become infected by COVID or who have died from COVID are citizens of the United States. Mm. And yet we represent only 4% of the world's population. Wow. Now, let's start out with some good news for all our listeners. Illinois and Chicago is one of the leaders in preventing this disease from killing us. In the last few days, seven days, the infection level, the number of people who are infected has grown by about 5%. We should be very proud of that. That is because many Chicagoans and Illinoisans are wearing masks, practicing social distancing, washing their hands, not visiting old people if they're younger, they're trying to prevent the spread of this deadly infection from killing people. And we're, we should be very happy about that because across the U.S., 40 states now have seen tremendous increases in infection rates. Right now, Florida, Texas, South Carolina, Arizona, California, and several others, we've seen a five time increase. Mm and infections over the last two weeks.
2: Now, do you find, Edward, with uh, people having socialized more this holiday weekend in Chicago, in Illinois, are you expecting the numbers in our state to rise in the next two or three
3: weeks? If those people did not have masks on and were six feet apart, I would suspect that's true. Now, remember this. This is a disease that can affect everyone. It was announced today, this morning, that Nick Cordero, a 41-year-old Broadway star, just died Mm -hmm. of this pandemic.
2: I read that this morning.
3: Yes. And he has a a very young family. It's a tragedy. Younger people are dying from it. Mm -hmm. More importantly, even though the death rate among younger people is lower, they can pass this on easily to older
2: people. Yeah. I, I'm going to ask you this question. Baseball is trying to launch. They're practicing right now. I think July 23rd, July 24th, they're going to try to begin playing baseball. Of course, no fans. The teams themselves will be distanced. Do you honestly believe baseball trying to launch is a good idea? No.
3: Right now, we are seeing an increase of 100,000 cases per day that the— uh, Well, that's not quite true. I I take that back. We have warnings that we are approaching the possibility that we're going to see 100,000 new cases per day. In the U.S.? In the U.S.
2: Mm.
3: And we have to do everything within our power to prevent this from happening. All right? Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about this now. We have in the U.S. right now 2.8 million people are infected and we have almost 130,000 deaths.
2: In and 20... going on that, and then that is a fact.
3: That's a fact. In 2018, 36,000 people in the U.S. died from car accidents. Hmm. COVID 19 is killing at a rate of four times that.
2: And rising. And rising. can okay, Now, let me ask you another question that is, because uh, you know you're, you're an incredible historian. In 1918, 1919, the Spanish flu pandemic. Am I correct? That's right. Okay. Now, if baseball is trying to launch this year and they're having trouble doing it, and this might be a tough question, why was baseball played in 1918 and 1919 despite the Spanish flu that took huge numbers?
3: Well, there was tremendous fixation on the first world war that's when we were fighting world war one okay. in 1918 mm-hmm. and uh the president Woodward Wilson did not call a national emergency many states and cities uh did not do very much to protect their citizens so we had a huge number of people dying mm. all right okay and uh We're seeing this this again. I mean, we we have some people telling you that, uh, you know, this isn't serious. Only 1% of the population may die from it. Uh, Well, if we have 1% of the people dying who may be infected, and in 1918, that was 25% of the U.S. population was infected in 1918, 1919, 1920. It spread over several years. Mm-hmm. That was 85 million Americans.
2: How many died in the uh, Spanish flu epidemic in the U.S., you remember?
3: Only 675,000 Americans. Wow. That's, and that was 1% of those infected. So oh, let's wow. let let's let's say today that twenty five percent of Americans get infected with COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. That'd be two point one million Americans
2: infected. Infe- no, would the number be? Would how many Americans are U.S. Right now, 300? the United States has a, a, around three hundred and
3: forty million people.
2: And if you were to take one?
3: 25 percent, no twenty five percent got infected mm-hmm. in 1918, 1919. So let's say it was a we much have 25% population. infected now. Mm-hmm. All right? uh, so that's over 2 million people.
2: You're talking about some staggering numbers.
3: Yes. So, uh, you know, if uh, a bar owner down in Lubbock, Texas, said we should just let it run its course, in other words, right. herd immunity, all mm-hmm. right? Well... To get herd immunity, you need, through vaccination or people getting it, 60% of the population needs uh, to have some resistance.
2: That'd, or, be have, that'd be 175 million Americans.
3: Well, if you take uh, 60% of the people, let's just say for the sake of argument, that you take 60% of the people who are infected die, mm-hmm. all right, that would be 5 0.1 million Americans. I mean we're talking about huge numbers of people that theoretically could die from this. And you know the city of Chicago has a population of about 2.7 million. If 25% were infected, so I'm going I'm lowballing this mm-hmm. now. That's 68,000 Chicagoans within the city limits would get sick. And 30,000 people would die. Now, in the actual Spanish flu, at that time, the city of Chicago had a a much uh, smaller population. Population. Uh Right. It was about 756,000 people. 8,500 people died. That's 1%. Okay. Okay. Now we're much bigger, aren't we? Absolutely. Yeah.
2: So now just multiply.
3: Right. So in the state of Illinois, with a population of 12.6 million, you'd have three, a little over three million people would get sick. And if only 1% died, and that's what some people are saying, well, it's only 1%, that's 31,600 people in Illinois would die from this.
2: In one state?
3: In one state. Now, those numbers are not acceptable. They're not acceptable to you, or to me. Mm-hmm. As Catholics, we believe in a right to life.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: We are all in this together now. This is a war. This yeah. is a national emergency. If, you, if there was a war on that threatened the United States as in World War II, and we had a national draft, and people went to fight for their country, mm-hmm. it would unite the country. I'm saying to all your listeners today, I'm drafting all of you. This is a life-and-death plague. This can touch the lives of many people in your families and friends, whether they are Catholics or Jews or Protestants or atheists. There will be no discrimination here. I'm saying to you, we're all in this together, and we need to fight this with the tools that we have.
5: Which means what we're doing, what we are
2: now, what Edward, we're advocating. Why yes. are many people not taking the pandemic seriously? And you said because it's been very uneven regarding some responses.
3: That's right. In other words, the official response has been mixed. Remember, at the beginning of this, we were told you didn't need to wear a mask. Right. A lot of that was because they needed masks for health care people, and we had such a shortage because we had not provided for this epidemic to start, all right? That has shifted. Now, because we know more about this pandemic, this plague, uh, we realize that this is an airborne disease, and that if you are within six feet of someone else, even outside, you can get this if you do not have a mask on and that person does not have a mask on. Now, let's delve down a little more into the psychology and the culture of Mm -hmm. this. In Asia, Asians have been wearing face masks for a long time to control different diseases, particularly the flu. In the West, it's harder, though. In Northern Europe, uh, they seem more resistant than in the Mediterranean countries. Now, here in the U.S., let's take a look at male and female behavior. A lot of men feel that they should reject masks because it is denigrating their masculinity, their power, all right? Mm -hmm. And they think it's shameful. It's not cool. It's a sign of weakness, a stigma. Uh, Just today I was reading an article about how women are resisting because it smears their lipstick, uh, and they're getting their lips tattooed permanently so they can't smear their lipstick. And now how the cosmetic companies are preparing for a huge drop in lipstick sales because of the, uh, the masks. Uh, so there is a reluctance upon certain people to recognize how serious this situation is. And uh, at the same time, Uh, As I said, there's this issue of civil rights. Abraham Lincoln, right before his assassination, said this, What has happened in this civil war will reoccur. Human nature does not change. In any great nation's trial, we have people who are weak or are strong, who are silly and are wise, who are good and and are bad we must study this conflicts incidents to learn wisdom from this and not as just the wrongs to be avenged but to take better action in our future crises well that crisis is now let's learn from our past let's take that action let's take the self-sacrifice that our parents and grandparents did during the Great Depression and during the Second World War, to win that war. This is our war, and it's being fought right now in our neighborhood and community and in every state. I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud that my freedom is guaranteed by the Constitution. But I'm also willing to sacrifice some of my personal ability to do whatever I want whenever I want to do it for the greater good of those around me. I say this as a Catholic. I say this as a Chicagoan and an Illinoisan and a citizen of the United States. We should be the example for the world to show them how it's done.
1: Our thanks to Dr. Ed Gordon for his insight and historic perspective. Always a great guest. On our Lifelong Journey program this past week, Clarissa Alantera visited with Emily Cortina of the Colby House Jail Ministry. Let's listen to part of their conversation.
6: Can you explain a little bit about the Colby House Jail Ministry and how long it's been around for, roughly? Yeah.
7: Yeah, Colby House was founded in the the mid-80s. Father Larry Craig is recognized as the founder, but he was part of a small group of um, religious and lay people who would get together and talk about, um, the, the, the issues that their communities were experiencing. And, um, incarceration is one of those issues. The criminal justice system kind of wrapped up, connected to lots of other issues. Um, but they wanted to do something. They wanted the church to respond. Mm-hmm. And so they came up with a proposal of Colby house and brought that to Cardinal Bernadine at the time. And he said, yeah, let's, let's go for it. And so they they named it Colby House. Um, It was founded just a few months after St. Maximilian Colby was canonized. Um, He was a saint who was martyred in Auschwitz. Um, So he was a prisoner and he ministered to prisoners. Um, And then they put house on that name because they wanted to recognize us as a ministry of hospitality, Um, not a social service agency, not an office that you go to, um, but really something that's, that's a community that's based in hospitality. So that's how Colby House was born.
6: That's, you know, I I know very little about uh, Colby House's origin. And that is probably the most that I've, I, I guess the in-depth story behind it. And I had no idea that it, the house was to be, to really represent the hospitality that I imagine um, when people are coming to Colby House looking for help or looking for anything that, that you know might um, help change their situation or their family situation, the house and the idea of hospitality must be a beautiful image for them to kind of encounter.
7: It definitely is. And the importance of community um, in order for individuals who have gone through traumatic experiences, who have experienced hurt, I mean, the importance of community can't be overstated. Um, and that's one of the gifts of our church, you know, is that we're so community-based. And so it, it just, you know, it made sense for the ministry to take on that form.
6: Yeah, the reason uh, we invited you, uh, we, uh, the royal we invited you on this morning, was we really wanted to, to an opportunity, kind of given today's context and all that's been happening, especially since early spring of this year, of, you know, what does it mean for... Colby House, to take on the formation of, of parents and families and, and formation, at least for us in, in Lifelong Journey, is like, well, it's, it's, it's more than a desk and it's more than notebooks and it's more than kind of rote learning and teaching and online learning. I think the formation of families, especially during this time, is, to me, in the approach that you're, you're thinking about, is really person-centered, Involving like the, I mean, senses and experiences and emotions kind of to help an individual like continue to form themselves.
7: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the effects of crime and criminal justice are, they extend far beyond those who are are behind bars. You know, they affect victims, they affect the families of those people, and they affect the communities. Um, and every community is touched by incarceration in some communities it's a it's a very hidden problem. There's a lot of stigma around having a loved one who is in jail or in prison. Um, and in other communities it's far too obvious um, the impact that the criminal justice system has And I think like you said, we're we're in a moment where we're really waking up to the fact that we can't just limit our concern to our family or our immediate community Um, we need to have an open idea about who our neighbors are and we need to renew our commitment to caring for each other and and that that's when that can come from the family that's such a beautiful thing Um, and so you know at we're starting to ask those questions in a much bigger way how can we all play a part in in creating a more just and peaceful society
6: now, I'm curious in the past couple months if if in your role uh, working with doing a lot of the outreach, uh, perhaps to families and even volunteers or even community members, have you found yourself more busy or is there been more interest that people have expressed during these times?
7: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when, when the stay-at-home order started and I thought, oh, we're going to be working from home, I'll catch up on all these projects and, you know, things that of looking ahead planning for the future um a lot of that got pushed down in priorities um you know and and rightfully so we're, we're grateful for the opportunity to have increased contact inter- increased interest in what we're doing and an opportunity to be part of the conversation of of how we, we respond to racial injustice in particular at this time
6: so do you have a, a recent example, maybe in the past couple months of uh, maybe people who've reached out or conversations that you've had in the community? What is that? What is the real kind of day to day look like for you in the past, you know, three or four months?
7: Yeah, well, there's been, of course, a lot of online events just because of the, the time that we're in um, lots of online conversations. Um, interest in learning more so forums about criminal justice about racial injustice about um, about how people can get involved we recently hosted um, a series of of discussions of the movie just mercy Mm -hmm. which the archdiocese was promoting and they had done some before but there was you know a, a renewed interest to sort of dive deeper into that um and so we had conversations with some of our volunteers who have been visiting the jail regularly, as well as others who were just brand new to this and, and wanting to renew their commitment, wanting to do something in a bigger way. Um, so that's one recent activity that we hosted. But um, last night our, our director was on Theology on Tap, so we've yeah. been, you know, we've just been um, getting involved in, in a lot of those conversations that are happening.
6: Uh, what you're finding now, um, especially with the type of ministry that you're doing with uh, Kobe house is that people have to look out for families beyond their own and the kind of call to respond uh, to community. It sounds like is what is what some of the, the unrest um, is maybe helping people turn inward to kind of realize.
7: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, It's part of our call as Christians as well. Um, You know, one of the scripture verses that Colby House um, always goes back to is Jesus calling us, you know, I was in prison and you visited Mm me. Um, And that becomes a call, I think, to turn towards suffering, to turn towards others who are suffering. And that's a hard thing to do, um, especially when we're experiencing, you know, we all have have internal issues too, personal, um, in our own families. And it can be hard to turn towards others who are suffering and and try to carry other burdens as well. But um, what we really find through our ministry, through our volunteers who engage in this ministry, is that when you're carrying it together, you know, the commitment grows to to alleviate that burden and, and it doesn't feel as heavy. But But it's not an easy thing to do to turn towards other families, other communities who are suffering, especially if it's in a way that we don't understand or that we're not familiar with. Um, But that's what we're called to do.
6: Now, tell me a little bit about how you came to Colby uh, House Ministry. It sounds like you you joined uh, a few years ago, but I I imagine there was a spark that came up deep within you um, at some point before three years ago. Tell us what that was like.
7: Yeah. So, you know, I think it started, well, everything starts when we're kids, right? Some kind of formation that we, we receive. But when I was in high school, um, I'm from Nebraska, um, but I actually came on a service trip to Chicago um, through Young Neighbors in Action. And that's the first time that I learned about Catholic social teaching. And that really awoke in me sort of this conviction. I, I from that experience onward, I knew that somehow my life would be mission and service-driven. Um, I didn't know what that would look like, but that sort of set me on that path. Um, you know, if you fast forward eight years or so, I ended up back in Chicago after after college, after a, a service program abroad. I came to Chicago for graduate school in ministry, um, and just about a month after moving here, I in a very um, a very odd story that we won't get into, but I met my who's now my now husband. Um, uh, kind of one of those stories that never uh, that you can't believe to be true. I wasn't, you know, I was I was really happy. I was in a good place in life and um, met him, and um, it just so happened though that he had just been a few months out of jail at that time. Um, and his story, there were so there's so many things in, in what happened to him that didn't make sense. Um, you know, he ended up pleading guilty to charges that he could have been cleared of quite easily, um, just to get out of jail. And that's a, that's an issue, um, a big problem here in Cook County. Um, but that's sort of, you know, I knew there were problems with the criminal justice system, but. At that time, I guess it was still sort of hard for me to accept um, how incredibly flawed the system really was. And and our relationship shaped the path that ministry took.
4: Um,
7: And so I did my practicum in the juvenile detention center with Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation, which is based in Back of the Yard. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when I was visiting the juvenile detention center, You know, here I am, this white girl from Nebraska, um, visiting teenagers, you know, from inner city Chicago, um, visited one gentleman, Orlando from a Puerto Rican family, um, you know, gang tattoos. I was intimidated and I thought, how, how on earth could I connect with someone so different from me? You know, how, what, what can I offer? What can I bring?
1: Um,
7: and I happened to be expecting my first child at that time. And I remember, um, you know, after our initial meeting and he knew that I was expecting, he would always ask me how I was and, you know, about my morning sickness. And, and then he would show me pictures of his son who had been recently born. Mm. Um, and, you know, he was a very proud father. And uh, we were able to connect on that shared human experience. Um, and so that, that um, encounter and those relationships convinced me that justice is about more than punishment, that we, we're doing it wrong. Um, that justice can really be achieved through relationship and connecting people. Um, and that's what, that's what can lead to healing and can lead to change in our communities.
1: Our thanks to Clarissa and Emily for sharing their insight on the Colby House jail ministry. Stick around. After a short break, we'll get an update on the Renew My Church initiative, and we'll also hear the latest from the Office of Lifelong Formation.
8: inspiring to see how individuals, families, and communities have found ways to help one another throughout 2020. At Catholic Charities, we usually have 35 to 40 events a year where we gather and enjoy time together in support of important programs and services, while raising critical funds that allow us to respond to the growing number of people who are in need of the most basic necessities in life. Many of our events are now virtual. If you would like to be a sponsor for one of these events, please call 312-948-6864. That's 312-948-6864. Also, visit us at catholiccharities.net slash events and follow us on social media too. We so look forward to when we can resume our events in person and reconnect with our friends and partners throughout Chicagoland. For now, please consider donating to Catholic Charities so our vital work can continue. Thousands of people in Chicago count on Catholic Charities every day. Please help us help them today. Learn more at catholiccharities.net.
0: We invite you to watch Catholic Chicago this weekend, featuring a conversation with Cardinal Blaise Cupich and video highlights from across the archdiocese. Here's host Todd Williamson. We'll talk with Cardinal Blaise Cupich about the outreach efforts underway by the Catholic Church to help people in need during the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll show you how online masses have become a common way of worship, and we'll give you a sampling of how teachers and students in Catholic schools are being creative and productive during the health crisis. Watch Catholic Chicago Friday at 7 p.m. on Chicago Loop cable channel 25 and Sunday afternoon at three on the Comcast network channel 100.
8: Throughout our nation and our world, people of all faiths have recently been joining fervently in all kinds of prayer. They have found that coming together in prayer is a source of comfort and strength. In this spirit of unity, the Archdiocese of Chicago has introduced a call to prayer, a telephone line dedicated to prayer. If you would like to join with another person in prayer, call 312-741-3388. This line is staffed from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. daily with parishioners from across the Archdiocese of Chicago. These volunteers are here to listen to you, offer support, and pray with you. A call to prayer includes a 24-hour voicemail and email options as well. Experience this wonderful opportunity to join with people just like you who trust in the power of prayer. That phone number again is 312 741 3388 Let's pray together today.
0: You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 9:50 AM and 930 AM. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review.
1: Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. The Renew My Church initiative continues despite the COVID-19 pandemic, Holy Name Cathedral Rector, Father Greg Sackowitz and Mark Teresi got an update from Father Jason Malavi, the Cardinals delegate to Renew My Church strategic planning and implementation.
2: So Jason, with all that is happening with Renew My Church, how has this been handled in spite of COVID-19?
5: You know, I'm really happy to be on the show and to maybe first remind listeners about Renew My Church. What is Renew My Church? Because we, we still find that there's a there's a misconception and, and, and a, a big question mark when people talk about Renew My Church. So it will be five years ago that Cardinal Searchers, Cardinal Supich invited us to a time of renewal, five years ago in September. This Has it in been September.
2: five years, September 15? It? No. That's right. That's we had right. a big it priest was... gathering five That's years right, ago.
5: The, the end of September 2015. Sure. Uh, and he called us to this time of renewal, and so we've been embarking upon renewal. And, you know, I think that one of the areas of renewal certainly is structural, but the biggest area of renewal that we have to look at is our own personal journey of faith. Uh, you know, we, we, we could talk about the Church, we could talk about all the things that are happening in the world, but so seldom do we really talk about how we're doing in our own, in our own journey of faith, how we're walking as Jesus' disciples. So that is the fundamental call for Renew My Church is, is how are we doing as disciples? Are we deepening our discipleship and further mm-hmm. are we able to share our faith with others? Because that's the only way it passes on from father and mother to child. Uh, from from friend to friend, from neighbor to neighbor, that's the way that Jesus did it, and that's the way we're called to share our faith, is is really relationally with one another. So uh, to talk more about the structural part, because you know I think that's the overall... Yeah, before you move on
2: there, Jason, I think you hit on something important, and that is yeah. two words that Catholics are uncomfortable with is the word evangelization. They see like going door-to-door with a Bible. that's a very Protestant mm-hmm. term sometimes. It's very Catholic, but... It's their mentality. And number two, about sharing the faith. I think many Catholics have trouble sharing the faith. When I talk to them about sharing the faith in their own life experience, I, they come to realize they've been doing it more than they thought, mm-hmm. and never called it that.
9: That's right. Well, and discipleship right. is also, yeah. or uh-huh. people feel I'm not worthy. Yeah. I'm not. No, the priest. Well, I'm are, not a disciple. The priests are the disciples of Jesus, and word and by our followers. baptism, we
2: are all called to be disciples and followers of the lord and so it uh but you know you're right jason many people still have a misconception of what renew my church is though it's been going on for almost five years and uh but now when the whole implementation it was certainly thrown back for this year a bit with COVID 19
9: jason can i ask you a question uh not the broader the you're administrator of a parish how is it, how is it going there, uh, uh, in terms of the phases and readjusting to this whole thing? Because you're basically your pastor there, right? You're, you're administrator, but you're pastor.
5: That's right. That's right. And I'll happily talk about both of those. both yeah. For the larger spectrum of My Church, in what we call Wave Three, mm-hmm. because this is the actually the fourth wave. Uh, we had zero, one, two, and three. The the, the fourth wave of groupings. Remember that the whole diocese was divided into a hundred groupings. Mm-hmm. And this past academic year, the year that we just finished, the fiscal year we just finished, we were working with 14 uh, different groupings from around the archdiocese. And by and large, those 14 groupings before COVID those fourteen groupings had received, had discerned what might be the best structure for them for moving forward. Many unifications and many closings as well. Uh, they had already discerned that, and the cardinal had had made the final decision that that would be the direction that they would go. And so they knew that they knew their direction, and they knew what would be their outcome when COVID hit. What was that? The middle of March. Mm-hmm. So what it really impacted was people's ability to. Um, Come together and start planning for the new parish. Start start unifying themselves and uniting ministries and uniting um, a, a people and a parish vision for moving forward. That's what it really impacted. Well so I'll give an it, example,
2: Jason. That is a year ago. I remember vividly when Father Wayne Watts up north had that beautiful uh, picnic gathering liturgy. Had about a thousand people. That's, that's right. what you couldn't do this year
5: mm-hmm. that's right it has impacted that, so for instance, mm-hmm. you know i as Mark was saying, i'm the pastor or the administrator. I, I was the administrator of assumption up until you know nine days ago. Oh. I was the administrator <laughs> of assumption b v m parish uh but we were part of wave three, and so we did we hit discernment for for months and months and months we met representatives from all three parishes met. And we offered feedback to the Cardinal, and the Cardinal decided that the three parishes in East Little Village would unite to become one parish, Arlea Tepeyac, Assumption, BVM, and St. Roman. St. Roman and Assumption both had about 500 people on Sunday, Mm -hmm. and Arlea Tepeyac about 800 people on Sunday. So united, we had about 1,800 people on Sunday, and we know that. And I experienced very, very closely firsthand to have 500 people. It's very difficult to have... Uh, staff, and to have the vitality mm-hmm. that's necessary to pass on the faith to the next generation. It's very We're doing it on a shoestring budget, and we're missing a lot of the steps.
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
5: so that's what we know about very small parishes. So all three parishes will unite together, our lady at and uh, there was a new pastor named uh, and then Father Tom Bohar will take over as pastor, uh, or did take over as pastor July 1st. He's currently on a 30 day retreat, but he'll take over as pastor uh, uh, full time when he comes back at the end of July. Because so what makes
2: it very hard, Jason, and that is uh, when he comes back, he cannot have a gathering of the entire faith community right. now join because even Holy the Cathedral, which seats 1,200, our capacity right now is about 200, you know, right. with uh, physical distancing. And that makes a huge difference. So you'd like to gather with a 1,000 people as the uh, new happening emerges, but we just can't do that right now.
5: So what we're left with is our ability to do only what we can, which Mm -hmm. has been made unbelievably successful with with, uh, tools like Zoom and Microsoft Teams, uh, Zoom specifically. So... You know, what we've been able to do, uh, it, it staying specifically in East Little Village, we've been able to gather people together on Zoom calls over and over and over and over again, um, whether it's just the lectors, the lectors coming together from all three parishes on Zoom to meet each other, or the Eucharistic ministers coming together on Zoom to meet each other uh, over this electronic platform. Or our grouping team members coming together to check in and see how everyone's doing. Uh, it, it's been really there was, – there's was a prayer group that came together every Wednesday for a while uh, just to check in with one another. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're not huge numbers. Maybe we'd have 35 or 40 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's better than not being connected at all. And people are so grateful to see each other's faces. Now, th- that's been a huge learning curve that we we have this platform that we can and should be using – Uh, even more and more as we move through the COVID pandemic. That was a big learning for us. And that's the way we did try to stay connected as much as possible. And that's been happening across uh, in many of the unifications that are happening.
9: So there are are mergers occurring, but that also means closures. And this is a difficult time to even celebrate a closure. How do people, you know, your parish, as you knew it, is going to be merged uh, and how do you uh, how have, how have pastors handled that
5: mark that's that's the question uh, that we've really mm-hmm. been keeping our eye on and the cardinal is very intent on making sure we're doing it as humanely as possible mm-hmm. um, because there are a good number 14 14 parishes that actually will end their ministry they've been united to another parish and they will end their ministry 14 and that's a big number wow. that's a big number yeah and uh, you know so they, they really felt like they had a double a double a double punch in the gut first was mm-hmm. hearing the news even though they they offered feedback and they knew uh, that they were not going to be able to sustain themselves as the parish community they knew that, 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 that these to be closing on most of the cases um, the, the first punch in the gut was the the hearing the reality oh my gosh that's right we are going to close the Cardinal has made the final decision in fact the feedback we gave him will lead to a, a closure and the second one was then, you know, uh, hearing that we can't do all the closing ceremonies as we would have liked to have done.
2: Mm-hmm. Which is so very important. You know.
5: So I think, you no, know, I know that the pastors that are walking with these two communities that are uniting into one are very aware of that. And we're talking with all the pastors and we're gathering them together to make sure that, Whenever we can be able to celebrate that, we will celebrate that, Mm -hmm. or whatever that means, having legacy days or having, uh, you know, remembering such and such parish and coming together for special masses and and, and, uh, remembering the the previous places of worship.
2: You know, Jason, even even along those lines is, you know, this has been a a time of transition for associates and pastors, so pastors who are leaving a particular parish, pastors who are retiring, pastors who are now coming on board to the new parish— uh, it can't be celebrated properly because of the of COVID nineteen. You know, there's those whole sense of giant celebrations.
5: There's so much closure that didn't happen. Correct. Graduates, confirmations, oh, gosh, for communions. Yeah retirements, uh, closings of parishes. There's so many moments of closure that didn't happen as we need as human beings. But what, I, what I've what i been heartened to see is some of the uh, ways the parishes have celebrated with their pastors who are retiring or leaving. So uh, on Facebook, you could see a number of uh, drive-bys. Uh, the pastor stands out after Mass in front of the yeah. parish, and there's cars and lines of cars that, that, that's farewell so okay. people are really finding ways to su- su- fulfill the need to have some kind of closure uh, and sometimes it's a drive-by
1: thanks to father jason for joining us on catholic chicago next up father greg and mark visited with kevin foy the director of the
2: office of lifelong formation kevin welcome to the program this morning how are you
4: I'm great. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Very doing fine. Good, where, thank Kevin, you. where are
2: you from originally, growing up?
4: I'm from Seattle, Washington.
2: Oh, you're Seattle's. When did you come to uh, Chicago?
4: Uh, I came to Chicago in 2015. Uh, my wife, my wife's from the Chicago area, so we met at Notre Dame in grad school, and then. Uh, lived in Seattle for a few years while we were um, early in our marriage, and then we moved back here uh, about four or five years ago.
9: Now, it was a while back, but were you familiar at all with Archbishop Tom Murphy from Chicago, who was out in Seattle?
4: Only by reputation. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm
9: -hmm.
4: (laughs) Only by reputation. He's a little before my time, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah, no, I heard a lot about him. I was working with the Marian old missionaries in Seattle, so I was pretty plugged into um, the church there and the archdiocese, so um, heard a lot of great things for yeah. sure. Well,
2: maybe for a moment, uh, Kevin, you could tell our listeners, uh, the Office of Lifelong Formation, what is that office all about?
4: What are we all about? Um, We're about Catholic faith formation from uh, womb to tomb, as we Mm -hmm. say. So, you know, prior to renew my church, you'd have a youth ministry office, you'd have a marriage office, you'd have a catechesis office, and really the vision of Cardinal Supic was that, um, you know, it's not kind of just distinct moments, but it's a faith formation journey, so we help and support a lot of the um, faith formation uh, efforts within our parishes, baptismal preparation, family catechesis, religious education, marriage prep, young adult youth, but also work really hard to help um, parishes connect the dots between those ministries so that people really are on a journey um, and that they can move from something like youth ministry to being an engaged young adult, continuing formation, to being preparing for their marriage, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really what we're about is helping kind of build up those ministries. Key moments uh, in one's life. Yep, exactly.
9: So as parishes consolidate through this Renew My Church program, how are you folks involved? Uh, do you do assessments for parishes in terms of what their future, like, personnel needs or program needs are? How does that work?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, our involvement is really once um, parishes, you know, obviously we start in the archdiocese of building that culture of of evangelization um, and and really working um, through things like the Alpha program and engagement uh, of just adults as witnesses. But then, you know, once they start building that culture, we really help them just assess, uh, first of all, their starting point. So if they really, you know, have a lot of teenagers and really want to um, make the shift in youth ministry to, to make it more engaging, and more relevant, and then build from that pathways to other ministries. So that's really what we do. So right now we uh, are just embarking on piloting uh, with parishes' approaches to these ministries, really learning what works today. Now, Kevin, what
2: have you found to be the most challenging in your work right now with COVID-19?
4: Oh, gosh. Um, You know, the the, the challenge is just that um, it's disrupted everybody's Mm -hmm. ability to
2: Come together, we, you know, run
4: these ministries. So, yeah, come together, bring people together. Um, you know, that's that's really been that's that's really just kind of thrown everybody for a loop. See what it's I find to be the moment, most challenging physically.
2: as pastor rector, um, you know, being a parish priest, is the whole thrust of our Catholic faith community is to come together to be united mm-hmm. around the table of the Lord in the liturgy, uh, sacramental moments, parish gatherings, small large events. And with COVID-19, we're told to, um, again, that term is social distance, but I like physical distancing. Even Sunday liturgy, six feet apart, every other pew, now the cathedral does it very, very well. But it's a huge, tough adjustment. And now, even personally, I've had about 10 weddings postpone later in the fall, or many into 2021. Baptisms, m- All of them have postponed in March, April, May, and June. So it's it's just even funerals at about four or five during the pandemic and, you know, 10 people for a small wake service and then graveside at the cemetery. I'm sure you've heard stories like this left and right, Kevin.
4: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, I know it's 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 completely counter to how we understand um, uh-huh. what it means to be church. Exactly like you said, and then even to be able to, um, you know, the, the the worship experience. You know, when we were able to come back to worship, not not having that same kind of quality and experience, I, I including think that, singing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so I think... We're We're
9: grateful that Greg can't (laughs) sing anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't sing. Some prayers were answered. (laughs) I received a memo from the Cardinal. (laughs) Can I, uh, Kevin, can we back up a little bit? So, I don't imagine that in your life you thought, well, someday I want to be director of Office of Lifelong Formation in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Since since he was a boy. Yes. What what (laughs) part of your, give us a little background. How did your journey end up here with us?
4: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, you know, initially um, I started as a a teacher, um, which wasn't really the right Fit for me, but I, I was a Catholic school teacher. I come from a family of educators, and then um, you know, after three years of that kind of discern, that that wasn't really where um, where I wanted to be. I worked for a nonprofit with families, um, and I think that was a good foundation actually, because I would really accompany families um, who have children with developmental disabilities in oh, the wow. process of you know getting um, services from our agency. So I was really the link to make sure that they were. Um, that they were listened to and understood, and their needs were understood. Um, but eventually, I just wanted to work back for the church. You know, I'm a, I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school. Um, I started my career in, in Catholic schools, and so I was just kind of looking around, and I had found a really great work uh, in mission education work for the Marianol Missionaries, and did that for seven years, um, and that really um, helped me appreciate this you know the need people have and especially adults have to um have people accompany them in growing closer to christ and growing closer to the church and that just kind of led from there when we moved to chicago i started working at the um archdiocese in the mission office and then after about a year they said we need a director for lifelong formation and they they asked me to do it and i was open to it and that was about two years ago and it's been really a blessing so far to kind of um be involved in. so in, then Kevin, you know, have you been yeah. in
2: this present position for two years already
4: Yeah. yeah. When you were named, uh, I
2: thought it was about six months ago. Wow.
4: No, no, yeah, no, I spent about a year just kind of Figuring things out, and then in uh, back in January, we really launched our um, Renew My Church strategy for the office. So we're really just starting to come into being part of this whole Renew My Church um, process and helping um, parishes build their new reality for faith formation.
2: Maybe for a moment, you can tell us about some of the exciting programs, like marriage ministries, family catechesis, and youth ministry. Say more about those.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, like I said, where we're we've done a lot of research. We're piloting, you know, with when we say piloting, I should backtrack. It's a very kind of like inside baseball term. But the idea is that, you know, you want to... I like that I could talk few...
2: that all day with you.
4: <laughs> I want to. You want to take a few parishes that are interested and willing and have the energy around something and... Um, Test out something with them, you know, that you think is well researched and grounded in what you think works with people, but um, you know, really build from there so that we make sure we're we're helping parishes build kind of smart, relevant ministries. So, you know, youth ministry. Our youth ministry team did a lot of research just around what what do youth need, what what engages them, and, and are building a model to to work with parishes to to make youth ministry successful. So, like a really good example is that all the research tells us that actually. For youth to grow in their faith um, in a meaningful way, they need, on average, about six adult witnesses in their life um, that they can turn to. And so one of the things you would say to a parish is say, look, it's great, we want to do youth ministry, but it's not just about having engaging programming for youth. It's not just about having big events and Pairos retreats. Those are all important. But you say, how you know, do, do you have sort of a critical mass of adult mentors? aren't theologians who aren't uh, professors that are just people who are Confident and passionate about their faith, and confident and and passionate about mentoring young people in their own faith journey, and so those are the types of things we'll be piloting that in the fall with parishes that are just willing to to do a meaningful experience for youth. Um, another you know example is you know um, what we call family catechesis, which you know means a lot to a lot of people, but basically. What, we're kind of accelerating that because of the pandemic, because what we've realized is exactly what you were talking about, Father, is that when we don't have that physical gathering space, well, you know, one of the implications and the opportunities is that parents realize that they can't just drop their kids off at the parish and get the religious instruction, and even into the fall, and may look very different, and they some come at home, some at the parish site. Right? And so we're really trying to pilot approaches with parishes to say, how do we help Foster confidence in parents to take ownership in, in the faith journey and being the faith leaders of their family and the role that we as a church understand is the primary catechist for their children. And so we'll be working with some parishes to really kind of pilot an approach that has some kind of virtual at home pieces has some community pieces at the parish and instruction at the parish, um, has deeper sort of engagement in parish life and pathways to, to do that as part of the program, and then also some parent formation sessions to help just for them on their own grow in faith so that they can feel confident in in leading that journey for, for their
9: young people. Now, Kevin, as, as um, you continue your ministry here, um, how do you how do you— project into the future in terms of these involvements? I mean, since there are so many obstacles, how do you keep positive? How do you look at it? How do you look at this for the future in terms of, you know, we can still be an asset to folks and here's how we can do it?
4: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, it sounds funny to say because this it's been so challenging, but um, I've, I've actually seen so many sort of blessings in our work and the work of parishes with faith formation um, through the pandemic. I, I think the pandemic has really challenged all of us to say, um, how do we not just say, oh, people can't come, I guess, you know, we'll see you in a few months, to saying, no, we need to go to you, we need to be where you are, we need to maintain that connection, we need we need you to feel supported, we need you to feel like um, the Church has something to offer you in the space that you live. And so when I see things like what all these parishes have done in in really strengthening, for instance, their communication with their their parents and just um saying, Okay, through March March through June or whatever, we lost all of our ability to do most of our faith formation. So to say let's stay connected with parents and say, here's how you can pray at home this week. Here's how you can have faith conversations at home this week. Here's a simple activity just so your child is continuing to learn about and connect with God. And and you know, a lot of other tools that you know we should have been and um, developing anyway because right. people have hectic right. lives and you know um, life is hard and we need to be kind of adaptable flexible to where they are so even you know god willing when everything kind of comes back to normal or whatever normal is you know we can still continue to to, to build these tools and be flexible with people and connect with them so you know like, like i said I, I work with missionaries and so i always kind of see how challenges can force you to be a little more creative and listen to this mm-hmm. i think the you know experience. kevin hit
2: right in the head and that is we have to look for new ways instead of saying like you said earlier okay you know, stay home, see in a couple of months, because unfortunately, and I'm always an optimist, but I really think this COVID-19 is going to be with us for a while. When you see numbers spiking in many states, in fact, I even read in the paper today, the numbers have started to go back up in Illinois, not in terms of deaths, but in terms of cases. Now you can tell me they're doing more testing. I get it, but I just feel that this is going to be with us for a while, and we have to be remain hopeful because... Um, this isn't going away, and so we just can't say, okay, we're going to close shop but find new creative ways in the Spirit. And so I think in some ways, the Church as we knew it is now so totally different, but it's still the Church, because the Church is people, the body of Christ. And uh, so I, th- I think you, you look for new creative ways. Ultimately, it's the Lord's Church, and we, we we trust in the Lord, but we are His hands and arms and feet to be ministers
9: of the Word of God. Kevin? Could you tell us, you said you've seen so much in terms of positive, maybe a story that um, encourages you in terms of your ministry?
4: A story that encourages me? Yeah, no, I mean, um, what's interesting in my ministry is I'm a support, right? I'm, I'm working to support all of our um, catechetical leaders and parishes um, and uh, formation ministers to really do what they need to do to serve the people that they serve. So I think what's you know really inspired me is that right when the pandemic hit, you know these folks got together and just started working together. They started you know um, in, in vicariates meeting weekly to really talk about what are what are you doing, what did, what tools are you doing, how are you doing virtual, how are you doing communication. Oh, you can't call parents. You can use this app to call um, and mask your cell phone number. Oh, you know this program is great for um, for uh you know continuing first communion preparation um now that it has to be virtual and so there was really a, just a strong sense of um not not only solidarity and being a communal church that it wasn't about oh my parish and your parish and kind of being um being siloed against each other but also in we need to keep this going we need to minister right now we're we're not going to sit on our hands and wait i mean just the energy with people in these parishes to to make sure that their ministries are continuing and people are still being served was, you know, palpable, really. Like the spirit was really in alive, alive in people. And now they're really working so hard to say, how do we be, you know, build our digital options op- options for the future? How do we think about um, whatever's on site is, you know, it's going to be safe. I mean, just the energy, um, because, you know, those are the folks that I work with and just the energy they have around making, making sure that people are are connected to the church and receiving the formation they need.
1: Thanks to Kevin Foy for joining Father Greg and Mark for Catholic Chicago. Here's a reminder that you can attend Mass online by visiting our website, archchicago.org. That's archchicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash chicago. Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning, to Univision for televising our Spanish-language Mass at 10 a.m., and PoleVision for televising our Polish-language Mass Sunday at 9 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. Thanks for listening to us every Saturday morning on Relevant Radio, 9.50 and 9.30 a.m. I'm Jim Dish for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, artschicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.